with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, 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 March the 10th, 2023. And we are going to have a great show today because since it is Friday, it's time for an expert council Q&A show. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. We have a brand new member of the Expert Council, and he is not a stranger to, I would say, most of this audience. You'll find out who it is in just a minute. Uh, What are we going to talk about today? Well, number one, up in the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, we're going to draw a historical connection. That's actually a hint for who the new MSB, or I'm sorry, for who the new Expert Council member is that you'll hear very, very soon. Uh, on that note, the reason I said MSB is I got a kind of a little hint of something that's going to be coming next week for that, too. Got a bunch of stuff for you today. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights the 1989 failure of communism and how it relates to the 2023 uh, pending failure of corporatism. Dr. Ron Paul, Fauci and the lab leak from Dan McAdams and Dr. Paul. And politically motivated purchases lead to regret from Chris Rossini wrapping up the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. Now here it is, your new expert council member, Professor C.J. Kilmer from the Dangerous History Podcast. We'll talk about the the Co-Intel Pro, whatever that was. If you don't know, you'll find out. And its correlation to the January 6th BS and the Tucker tape drop, C.J. Kilmer. Ben Falk will talk about dealing with high water if you want a basement. And it's not really like a happy-go-lucky segment. It's kind of like good luck at the end. I'll do a little add-on to that one and why he's telling you that. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about this new study I've heard about from so many of you. Erythritol will give you a heart attack. I should be dead by now, I guess. But, you know, things can be true and false at the same time. This is a long segment, but I've gotten so much interest in it. I decided to go ahead and play it for you. It's actually a video Ken did on his channel. I grabbed the audio out of it because I saw no reason to make Ken repeat this. And this, since it is such a hot topic and so relevant to the keto portion of this audience, I have it for you today. I will also have a little addition to it for some additional thoughts on why I don't give a tiny rat's butt about this study for myself personally. But I might for you if you're using, you know, tablespoons of this stuff every single freaking day, which has never been what I've recommended, even though I do recommend products that contain erythritol in them. Nicole Sauce will have some uses for canned beef. A lot of questions about that because Nicole did a really great workshop on canning food, including pressure canning for things like beef. Now that I got all this canned beef that's really, really soft, it's not like a steak on the grill, what do I do with it? Nicole's got some ideas. I've got a few additional things you can do with it to add to it. And one little tip about the whole thing that I think you'll really kind of groove on with any use of any canned you know, meat, whether it's chicken, whether it's beef, whether it's pork, venison, it doesn't really matter. That tip really applies to everything. And then Nicole hits on something in this. Something I call opportunity buy, and I have a comp- and I haven't done a show on this, and I probably need to do a show on the whole thing again. I haven't talked about it in a long time. 
my 12 tenets of modern survivalism include food storage, and that d developed into, early on, the concept of a holistic food storage system. This way that we look at food storage, instead of buying a bunch of crap and throw it in a closet and forget about it, but we also go beyond the simple eat what you store and buy, eat, store what you eat and eat what you store, right? We actually go beyond that, and we look at different aspects of it. We build pillars within the one component of food storage, so we have a holistic program. We become a producer of food, but we also become a producer of stored food. And we're going to talk about how those skill set development things match up with what's called opportunity buy, and so how can we extend our food storage through purchasing power by using opportunity buys. I just thought this was a perfect fit for something I haven't talked about in a while, and Nicole sets me up for it just absolutely awesomely. So that will be my anchor segment for you today. Uh, I do want to real quick tell you about a few things before we dig into the expert, candle se expert council segments. First of all, I've been mentioning it this week, but there's a reason I've mentioned it so many times. I don't want you to miss the opportunity. Next week, Paul Wheaton's latest Kickstarter on low-tech labs, which is all from his permaculture jamborees he does every summer up in Montana, is dropping. This is going to be a, a, a complete video set of how to do all these amazing things. If you want to know the amazing things, go look at the Kickstarter. Here's the thing. It's not live yet, but I have a special backdoor link for you in today's show notes. It's in the Daily Mail. It went out in social media today. It went out on the Telegram channels and Discord, all of that. If you're, if you're tied in anyway, it's already there. If you're not, tie in or go to the episode today. And check this out. He's given away over $100 worth of free stuff to anybody that Early Bird backs the Kickstarter. He's doing this because he knows you get a lot of people involved early. The Kickstarter gets traction. It does much better. Paul is really a master of two things. Content, educational content creation for permaculture and Kickstarters to get it out to the masses. And he knows this is the key. So the way it works is you have to back the Kickstarter in the first 48 hours. What happens if you miss it? Because you all forget stuff, yeah? If you miss it, you get, you get the hose. You still got a lot of stuff you can get, but you can't get all the freebies from the first 48 hours. So how do you make sure you don't miss it? You click the link. You go there, and it'll say, it's not live yet, but click here to take a look at it. You enter an email, and the second that thing goes live, you'll get an email saying, hey, it's live now. And you can back it, and you can get in on all the extra goodies. This is totally worth it. Next up, the Self-Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee. I've been on that hard because, well, you're running out of time. And when I say running out of time, I just mean it's happening soon. So how, you know, once it happens, it's too late. You got If you have to travel at all, you have to make plans. Well, it's the March 10th right now, and March 26 and 25 and 26 in Camden is a Self-Reliance Festival. So if you want to get to that, get over to the show notes today. Click the link, and you can learn all about it. Find your tribe in Camden, Tennessee. It's a huge event, four, five, six hundred people. I don't know what their attendance is going to be this year. The year I the year I went twice, it was around six hundred both times. I met lots of awesome people. Go meet people, get in, and be part of it. But if you can't go. If you just can't, because sometimes you, I can't go to this one. I can't go to everyone, you know. If you can't go, there is digital passes available, too. It's in the write-up that I have on the website. It's in the show notes for today. With that, let's drop into the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week in order. Dr. Paul, 
Then Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams team up on a segment, and it's anchored by Chris Rossini, and we'll come back with a little bit of my thoughts on what they had to say. But, you know, the problems we have are bad. I think they're very serious. I think they're bigger than anything that, that the world has ever faced in a financial sense. And also the international scene is so dangerous, too. And corporatism is not good. It is not free markets, even though you have corporations in one area and government supposedly not doing too much in this other area. It's a dangerous situation, and they, they're in collusion. But it wouldn't be hard. The solution is easy, but there's a little bit of acceptance of a mistake and the acceptance of a little bit of uh, effort and and pain that you have to suffer through. Because uh, the one thing that we could do is, uh, you know, accept the Constitution and say, you know, gold and silver has to be legal tender. Nobody can print the money. And that's not complicated. It's just that people want the people who want to print the money are the big banks and the big corporations, the military-industrial complex, the pharmaceutical industry, because they believe they can get hold of it first. But the middle class pays the pays the by having the inflation. The other thing that we must do if you want the market to help solve these problems is reject the interventionism and the planning of government and through regulations or through the Federal Reserve and the manipulation of credit. And that is, everything has to be voluntary, whether it's social, personal, religious, uh, sexual, whatever. Voluntary arrangements between two people, whether you're the businessman or the customer. Just so we just have an agreement. We come together, and then both sides are happy. But no, the government gets in the middle and writes thousands of regulations and then get, interferes with the uh, monetary unit, the measure of the unit, the unit of account. They destroy the values because nobody knows what the unit of account is worth. The nations that have followed the greatest amount of free markets and sound money, the more wealth there has been and the more peace. How can you beat that? I think it sometimes has to be placed on those of us who send the message out because if we did a better job, they would accept it. But this came from Zero Hedge, and the, and the title is Fauci Prompted. Boy, that's terrible. Prompted scientists to, to fabricate. That's cheating. Proximal origin, that's in code. Proximal origin paper ruling out lab leaks. The U.S. was doing risky gain-of-function research on U.S. soil until 2014 when the Obama administration banned it. Four months before the ban, Dr. Fauci offshored it to Wuhan, China through the New York nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance. After COVID broke out down the street from the Wuhan Institute, Fauci engaged in a massive campaign to deny the possibility of a lab leak. He was covering his tracks. He was warned, doing this gain-of-function research is very, very dangerous. You must stop doing it. He said, I know what, I'll move it to China. And then when it got out, he started having a panic attack and said, i got to do something. And now here is something from, the, um, from that House memo. And this is why it's very important. And this actually really bolsters what Senator Paul has been saying all along about this. Now, this is a quote from the Congressional House uh, subcommittee on this. It says, new evidence released by the select subcommittee today suggests that Dr. Fauci, quote, prompted the drafting of a publication that would, quote, disprove the lab leak theory. The authors of this paper skewed available evidence to achieve that goal. 
That is a very, very powerful claim. These are the same scientists. They were bought off with million-dollar grants. They skewed the evidence to help Fauci cover his own tracks about the gain-of-function research and the release of the virus from the lab. This is massive, massive, massive. Yeah, please pay attention when you make economic decisions. Is this a political product that I'm getting involved in, or is this a market product? If it's political, you're likely going to end up with regret at some point. You know, and the vaccines are a perfect example of that. That was all political. That was not the market at work. You know, that was pushed by the politicians in league with, uh, you know, the money makers that made the, the uh, jabs. And the goal was uh, to continuously give them to us, to stay up to date, and then prove that you're up to date in order to function in society. Fortunately, that dystopia failed. You know, but that was a political product. Another huge one that Americans have been just uh, robbed beyond belief is war. You know, they get emotions going. There's a bad guy somewhere. And just over and over, it's just failure. It's six trillion gone and another two trillion gone. And it just they just move from one to another. That is a political, uh, you know, that is not the market at work. That's the bureaucrats at work. And we pay for it. And just imagine if we had that six trillion from Iraq to, you know, put in this country and for our own personal lives. That was an option, but that option is gone. You know, so and there's lots of regret after all these wars and after the vaccines, there's lots of regret now. So you got to pay attention. Is this political that's being pushed on me or is this an actual economic market phenomenon that I should be involved with? So I'm going to let Chris's comments stand for themselves because they're pretty spot on. And I don't know that I need to add much to usually regret things when you do it for a political reason. Uh, I do want to hit. Uh, the lab leak thing and Dr. Fauci and what's going on there real quick and then back up to the first segment as well with just a comment on Dr. Paul's comment about gold in the Constitution. And, and it's one of the rare instances that I disagree with Dr. Paul. Uh, so let's start off with the lab leak thing. The big story here in all of the stuff that's come out in the past six months really is that it's nothing we didn't all know, if we knew. In other words, all we've really gotten is confirmation of being correct. The bigger story, no one that didn't already know cares or can be convinced, no matter how much information comes out, to show them that they were wrong. I made a statement recently on Twitter, and I think it just every day something proves it more and more correct. The man who builds his house on stupid will will burn it down and incinerate himself inside it before he will admit to being wrong. And the house is a metaphor for life. These, if you build your house on stupid, you will burn yourself to death inside it before you will admit that you're wrong. And that's what we're seeing play out. And it's why I have zero hope of a solution that comes from voting new people in office. It doesn't matter. The Republicans got elected into the House. They took control of the majority. They're running all their dog and pony show hearings. Yes, it's proving us right. Yes, it's bringing information to light. Have you noticed that no one cares? 
You have to accept that the people who have decided they don't care about the truth are not going to care about the truth. If the truth was a two-by-four and hit them in the head and knocked them out, they'd get up and use the truth two-by-four to rebuild their house of stupid and light it on fire and burn themselves to death inside it. The sooner you accept this, the sooner you can focus on the things that you actually control and influence because the opinions of the stupid you do not. We just had, in addition to everything he said, and I think that maybe they did this segment before it happened, the former director of the CDC just said on the House floor in, a, in, a, in testimony that he doesn't only believe that there was a lab leak, he doesn't only believe that Dr. Fauci approved funding gain-of-function research, he thinks several other alphabet organizations did as well. Let me say it again, who said this? The former director of the freaking CDC said this on the floor of the House. The media has not covered it. Not even the vaulted Fox News has covered this. And if you show it to somebody that says it's all, uh, all uh, a lie, it's all a conspiracy theory, they do not, 100%, do not care. It doesn't matter. They're still right. You should still have worn your mask. You still should have taken your vaccine. And you still should get your booster shots. And there's absolutely no connection to the coronavirus lab in Wuhan when the coronavirus started in Wuhan. That's crazy talk. The, the lesson here is that they will not listen. We have the law of stupidity on steroids here. And we've talked a lot about Chipola's theory of stupidity this week, and in the past, Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. Both of those theories state that the stupid person is the most dangerous person to society. Chipola specifically says the stupid person is the most dangerous because they will do things that harm others for no personal gain. I have an addition to both of these theories, though. It is not just a stupid person who is dangerous. There are a lot of stupid people who are aware of the fact that they're stupid and they're mostly actually in the harmless category. They may occasionally do something really stupid that hurts others, but basically they know they're not smart, so they rely on smart people to tell them what to do. The problem is they can't figure out who the smart person really is. But in general, they're not that, they're dangerous and they're dangerous in a mob, but as individuals, they, they kind of grift toward the harmless side of things. The dangerous people are stupid people that don't know they're stupid, right? The sixth sense of dead people didn't know they're dead. These are stupid people that don't know they're stupid. In fact, it's worse than not knowing they're stupid. They think that they're smart. Stupid people with educations, stupid people with college degrees, with letters after their name that make them feel that they're smarter than the average person. In fact, this entire generation of educated idiots, I've heard more than one of them say it, we are the most educated generation in history. Yeah, but you're also the dumbest, most incompetent, least capable generation in history. These are the most dangerous people that we have, and these are the people that you think one more hearing, one more election, one more, they will not change. They are stupid. You cannot fix stupid. They are willfully ignorant. You can show them. This is the former director of the CDC saying we did, in fact, fund gain-of-research activity in Wuhan, and it probably is where all this shit came from. That's a conspiracy theory. The man is the... See what I'm saying? And if you keep pushing that, it won't change a thing. Fix your backyard first, because these people are to be written off and observed for the danger they represent. Get in your circle of control and do it now. 
Next, last thing, just real quick on this. Dr. Paul always says this, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I disagree, because I wish I could agree. Because as much as I think gold has had its day in the sun as a monetary instrument, the world would be so much better off under a gold standard than a fiat standard. It would. Because it is a the gold historically was the governor of governments, and Ron knows this, and he's also a gold bug. However, there is nothing in the Constitution restricting the federal government to the use of gold as money. There is nothing in the Constitution that restricts the federal government to the use of gold as money. And I defy you to show me the word gold in the same sentence as the federal government or anything that refers to the central government in regard to gold in the Constitution. What you will find is the states will make no thing of money other than gold or silver. The states are not the federal government. The states are not the federal government. The prohibition on the issuance of currency in the Constitution applies to the states, not the federal government. And when you tell somebody this who disagrees with you, all they do is say, well, you're wrong, but they can never explain why you're wrong. Well, it says this. I know what it says. I just told you what it says. We don't disagree about what it says. We disagree about what it means. There is nothing in the Constitution that requires the federal government to use gold and silver as money. Nothing. I guess you could make an, an argument that it's implied, but if you know anything about constitutional law, that doesn't mean any. I'm sorry, not constitutional law, contractual law. Implied does not equal required in a, in a, in a, in a contract. And the Constitution indeed is a contract. And it's a contract between the member states. The federal government isn't even a party of the contract. It is the creation of the contract. This is hard to understand, but it's easy to understand. It's so easy, it's hard. It doesn't make any sense. How can the federal government not be party to the Constitution? Because it's the result of the contract. If you and me and 20 other people get together and we form a company, the company's not party to the articles of incorporation that are the contract that creates the company, all of us together, LLC, right? All of us together, LLC, can't be party to the contract because until the contract is executed, it doesn't exist. The United States federal government in its current form did not exist prior to the, the uh, ratification of the Constitution that we currently use. It didn't exist, so it can't be party to it. It's the result thereof. The states, in their infinite wisdom, solely chose to restrict their own ability to use fiat currency because they didn't think a federal government ever would. They were wrong. Anything that's not in the contract does not apply to the contract. I'm sorry, Dr. Paul. I wish you were correct. Because then there would be a case that could have been used to shut down this fiat nightmare when it started, but it just isn't there. It's not that I want to disagree. It's that my reading of the words clearly shows that in one of the most rare instances, Dr. Ron Paul is incorrect in his assertion here. I'm sorry. Next up, let's hear about something called COINTEL, what that was, and how it relates to the Tucker Carlson January 6th drop and all the psyops around Jan 6th. From our newest member of the Expert Council, Professor C.J. Kilmer, or as he likes to call himself now, the Renegade Historian. Howdy, everybody. This is C.J. Kilmer from the Dangerous History Podcast. I wanted to take the opportunity of my first segment here to talk just a little bit 
about something in history that has a lot of relevance to recent and current events. So when we look at things like the emerging truth about the reality of the January 6th cosplay riot and things like the Gretchen Whitmer uh, kidnap attempt and some other things that have been exposed and that have occurred in recent years. I wanted to talk a little bit about COINTELPRO, which is something that a lot of people have heard about but may not know a whole ton of detail, and I won't get into too much here because of time. But COINTELPRO was aimed at infiltrating, disrupting, and discrediting organizations that were deemed subversive by the U.S. government, and in practice, primarily organizations that were deemed subversive by whoever was president at the time, and especially J. Edgar Hoover, FBI director, regardless of who was president. So COINTELPRO officially took place from 1956 to 1971. Unofficially, of course, it started earlier than that. In fact, elements of it you can see occurring as early as World War I. And while COINTELPRO, as the official, you know, program designated by that name, ended in 1971, of course, the FBI did not really stop the sorts of infiltration campaigns and tactics that we associate with COINTELPRO. But speaking just about, you know, official COINTELPRO itself, from roughly 1956 to 1971, there were 12 major campaigns and over 2,000 individual FBI operations, nearly all of which were personally approved by J. Edgar Hoover himself. And among those targeted by all these operations were people like civil rights leaders and organizations, various non-mainstream political movements and organizations such as socialists, communists, far-leftists, as well as individuals and groups which were anti-war, of course, especially during the Vietnam years, and anyone whose sympathies were suspect, including even some U.S. politicians and various celebrities. An FBI agent named William C. Sullivan was the main agent in charge of the program for most of its existence, and he reported directly to J. Edgar Hoover. So the goals of COINTELPRO were to create a negative public image for whoever were the target groups by surveilling them and releasing any negative personal information to the public, often laundered through the media, as well as breaking down internal organization of groups, creating dissension between different groups in a larger movement, and things like restricting the ability to organize protests successfully and restricting the ability of individuals to participate in group activities. They would use tools such as hate mail, tax audits, and forged documents to try and destroy groups and organizations. When that FBI agent in charge of the thing, William Sullivan, testified to the United States Senate, he said, quote, No holds were barred. Never once did I hear anybody, including myself, raise the question, Is this course of action which we have agreed upon lawful? Is it ethical? Is it ethical or moral? We never gave any thought to this realm of reasoning because we were just naturally pragmatists. The one thing we were concerned about was this. Will this course of action work? Will it get us what we want? End quote. And like I said, in addition to spying on groups like socialists and communists, the FBI spied on black political activists of almost every stripe, because in the minds of Hoover and many at the FBI, any sort of black political activists were considered to be basically communist dupes. 
if not outright active collaborators. So even very respectable, nonviolent black activists, many leaders of the NAACP, and even future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, as well as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., were surveilled and harassed and so forth as part of COINTELPRO. And in fact, not long after Martin Luther King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech, the FBI decided to turn up the screws on him. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, if I remember right, once called him the most dangerous Negro in America or something to that effect. So they bugged and surveilled Dr. King wherever he went, and they even recorded evidence of Dr. King having affairs and tried to use it to blackmail him into killing himself. And the letter has even been exposed. It says things like, quote, There is only one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation, end quote. So an FBI agent wrote a letter to Martin Luther King encouraging him to commit suicide. In the late 60s, the FBI also went after the KKK and other similar groups with a department of COINTELPRO called COINTELPRO White Hate. Simultaneously, they were also launching COINTELPRO Black Hate, which went after black power and civil rights organizations, including relatively moderate and peaceful ones like Martin Luther King's SCLC, as well as more militant groups such as the Black Panthers. They also, in the late 60s, operated COINTELPRO New Left, which went after anti-Vietnam War type groups. Again, not making much difference between peaceful and actual violent groups, and again, using methods that were often illegal, immoral, and unconstitutional. COINTELPRO first began to be exposed to the public in 1971 when a group of citizens actually committed a burglary on an FBI field office and literally just stole some documents and then shared them with some trusted people in the press. And there's actually a documentary about this whole thing. I believe it's just called 1971. Now, officially, COINTELPRO ended in the early 1970s, and it was dug into as part of the Church Committee investigations in the United States Senate in the mid-1970s, along with a lot of dirty laundry of the CIA and some other intelligence agencies and things. And supposedly, COINTELPRO was done away with, but of course, as any intelligent person who's looked into the FBI's real history for more than a couple minutes knows, Operations and tactics like COINTELPRO have never stopped being a part of the FBI's repertoire. If anything, they are able to do a lot more today than they could, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago because they have way more tools and technologies to surveil and harass people and so forth and disrupt dissident political groups. So anyway, I would urge you to always be skeptical and always be on the lookout for potential modern-day versions of COINTELPRO-type operations infiltrating any groups and movements and things that are at all outside of blue-pilled mainstream American discourse. And if you would like to hear me talk a lot more about aspects of history that most people don't know about, check out my show, The Dangerous History Podcast, wherever you like to consume your audio podcasts. Thank you. So it's a good time to pause and remind you, if you want to ask a question of the expert counsel, the way to do that is send me an email, jack at the com. Easiest email on the planet, probably the most public email on the planet. I, I get people all the time, I don't know your email. I only give it out every show, jack at 
thesurvivalpodcast.com. My website is The Survival Podcast, and my name is Jack. Take a shot at it. It might work. But the formula, TSPC in the subject line, that'll make sure it does not go in the spam filter. If it does, I will be able to dig it out. Uh, and then if it's for the expert council, TSPC expert would be a good idea. Give me your question in a single sentence with a question mark at the end of it. Hit return. Tell me who the question is for. You know, Ben Falk, C.J. Kilmer, uh, Dr. Ken Berry, Doc Bones, Nicole Sauce, whoever it might be for. And then, if you feel that I need more details, give me as many details as you like after the bottom line up front version of the question and send it to me and I will forward it to the expert council member and we will try to get you an answer on the air. And it would be a great time for questions for C.J. Kilmer about history or historical context of current events. He is now a full-time podcaster, a renegade historian who has left academia and has taken the gloves off, a full-on anarchist libertarian, and a really great dude. And I want to help him, and that's why I offered him a spot on the Expert Council to help him get more exposure and become so successful as a full-time podcaster that he never, ever, 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 ever again has to go back into the darkness of the university system. Next up, let's talk about high water and building a house and wanting a basement, and what can you do about it? Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk here with Whole Systems Design. A question about water table being too between two to three feet and whether to build there i mean ideally no uh the the less you know the drier this the spot for the home is the better um you know it's good to have a full basement a resilient home has a full basement that's pretty much uh easy easy general statement to uh stand behind you you want a full basement if you are into resiliency and uh, preparation for, well, just a, a passive, low-energy lifestyle, uh, more affordable, be able to have a root cellar, be able to have shelter, cool space, combine, um, you know, make your roof work for you more, cover more space with the same roof, et cetera, et cetera. So you want a full basement for a lot of reasons. Um, if the water's two to three feet from the surface, I'm sure that's very seasonal. Most places it is. Um, I'm assuming that would be the worst. You can drain that with good foundation drains. I would. My first question would be, how much of a slope are you on? If you are on a very, very low angle slope, it's going to be more difficult to drain it. The steeper the slope you're on, the more easy it is to drain. If you're on a nice, solid slope, at least 3 to 5% or better, and you can easily drain it to daylight without undue expense or difficulty, bedrock would be one. Um, property boundaries would be another then no. I mean, you have to be able to drain it to daylight, the foundation drain it to daylight. So, um, yeah, I guess that, that's how I would look at that. Um, you don't want water. We don't want rising damp is what they call it around here. Um, I mean, as it is, most basements in wet areas are going to have some kind of mold in them, even if you do a really good job eventually, at least a little bit. Um, but yeah, I would avoid it if you can, but if you can drain it really well, then it's definitely viable. There's a lot of homes in New England where in the late winter, early spring, the water tables within two to three feet of the surface if there was no drainage. So good luck to you. So the almost snarky good luck, I don't think it was meant to be snarky. It's just an honest admission that, hey, if you're trying to build in a place 
with really high water, and you want to put a basement, and I understand why you want a basement, but there's there's a lot going on here, and it may not work. And it's it's one of those questions that's really hard for somebody to answer, uh, you know, from another location without actually looking at everything that's going on there. My addition to this is there are things we can make decisions on on our own. Putting in a basement where water table could be an issue is not a good idea. This is something for a professional builder who builds in the area, even if it is not someone who's going to build your house, even if you pay them as a consultation, you know, I want this for my architect or my builder or myself builder or whatever, and here's 500 bucks to come assess the situation and tell me whether I should do this or not. Pick a location if I have multiple building sites and tell me exactly what I need to do if I'm going to do this. Five hundred, a thousand bucks is money well spent in this situation. Because if you do it wrong, if you find an unscrupulous builder to help you with your foundation or whatever, and they put it in, the cost of making that critically type one error will exceed any amount you would pay a good consultant. Even if what that good consultant says in the end is, "Do not do this." It is much better to have a definitive, educated, informed, do not do this in this situation than to do it just because you want to. My other suggestion here might be maybe this isn't a basement build. Maybe this is a partial basement build. What do I mean by that? My, you know, a split level type uh, build where the, the, the lowest floor is partially earth surrounded. So my house in Pennsylvania that I had when we lived up there for a few years, when you went into it, you opened the door and you were about the middle of the elevation of the house. You, there was no floor there. There was a landing. And one set of stairs went down and one set of stairs went up. The primary living floor was the stairs that went up. And then the bottom originally had been a garage and a rec room. And they turned half the garage into a second rec room. And then we had like a mud room and a storage room from the other half of the garage. It was a wonderful house. The entire front of the house, for all intents and purposes, was a basement. But there was slope and the back of the house was completely exposed to the outside. You still got a lot of the advantages of a basement out of this. And it was nowhere near a situation where you had as much to worry about with high water. So that might be an alternative there. But this is a place for a professional to help you make a decision about what to do, where to do it, and how to do it if there ever was one. Next up, we had this new study came out said that using erythritol can give you a heart attack or a stroke. Don't eat it, keto people. It's much better to eat cane sugar, because that's the actual angle of this. I'm not saying this is 100% wrong. I'm just saying it damn sure ain't 100% right. I sent this straight to Ken Berry. He was already on it. He had this video. He gave me permission to strip the audio and play it for you. So here you go. Here's what's up with will erythritol kill you dead of a stroke or a heart attack and do it quick and hard. Erythritol. Is it a deadly poison or is it a safe sugar substitute? We're going to talk about a new research study that's just been published and give you lots of information about erythritol, the history of it, the chemistry of it. Should you avoid it or should you use it as part of a proper human diet? And I'm going to tell you at the end of this video who should be worried about this and who should change their dietary practices based on this new study. 
So this is the study that was just published in Nature Medicine, which is a fairly prestigious journal, showing that there is a possible association between uh, ingesting erythritol and major cardiovascular events such as heart attack, stroke, and death. Now, we're going to dive into this study and tear it apart a little bit and tell you exactly what it tells you and what you should do about that. But first, let's talk about erythritol just a little bit and what we know about it. So erythritol, here's the molecule, is actually found naturally in different things. It's found naturally in some mushrooms, in some fruits like watermelon, grape, pears, and also in any fermented food. Not all of them, but some of them including wine, cheese, sake, and soy sauce. So this is why the big food manufacturers were able to get a gross rating, which is generally regarded as safe, is because it is a naturally occurring molecule in nature in small amounts. Your body actually makes erythritol uh, from sugar in the pentose phosphate pathway in small amounts. Erythritol was discovered by a Scottish chemist by the name of Stenhouse back in 1848, and then it was isolated in 1852. In the 1950s, scientists found a small amount of erythritol in blackstrap molasses. Only in the 1990s was it ever mass-produced, starting in Japan, to replace sugar in people's everyday diets. And so, obviously, right off the bat, erythritol is not ancestrally appropriate. We've only been eating erythritol in any meaningful amount for just a few decades. When you eat or drink erythritol, it's absorbed by your small intestine and circulates in your bloodstream. Only about 10% of what you eat or drink makes it to your large intestine. And for some people, this can cause quite a bit of gastrointestinal distress, including cramping, nausea, watery stools, and flatulence. But for most people, they don't have these side effects. But what we know is that when you ingest erythritol, your blood levels of erythritol go up higher than they would be otherwise. In many cases, up to a thousand times what your normal physiological dose of erythritol would be. So right off the bat, that sounds a bit concerning because if you increase the amount of anything in your bloodstream by a thousand times, it's probably going to cause a problem. This includes water and carbon and hydrogen and everything. You don't want to increase the levels of anything in your bloodstream by a thousand X. So let's keep in mind why everyone's eating and drinking so much erythritol. It's because they're trying to replace sugar with it. And I'm going to talk more about this possible folly later in this video, but we know that sugar has a disastrous effect, starting in the mouth with the teeth and then with basically virtually every other organ in your body through glycation. So I don't think that replacing sugar is bad, but maybe the degree with which you're replacing sugar may be your problem. There are actually several other studies published before this research paper that showed that erythritol had beneficial effects on endothelial function and other markers of cardiovascular risk. So I don't think that erythritol is all bad. It may perhaps be in the degree, as in the dose makes the poison. So the first claim that this paper makes is that there's a strong association between uh, continuous erythritol consumption and major cardiovascular events like heart attack, stroke, and death. 
And this association appears to be relatively strong, two to three times the risk for people who consume the most. Now, this paper assumed that the average person in the United States is eating about 30 grams, eating and drinking about 30 grams of erythritol daily. But when you look at the FDA's website, they say that the average consumption of erythritol is about 13 grams a day and that 45 grams a day, which is what this study looked at, would be in the 90th percentile of ingestion. And so this would really apply to the people who are eating the absolute most erythritol on a daily basis. Now, there's no randomization in this study, so it absolutely cannot prove causation. It can only show a possible association. But the association that it shows seems to be more robust than many other observational studies that I've poo-pooed on this channel. So keep in mind that just because people who had major cardiovascular events while consuming a lot of erythritol, we cannot make the assumption that the erythritol caused those events. They're only associated with it. And indeed, many people who already have pre-existing risk factors for heart attack, like diabetes, like hypertension, metabolic syndrome, and obesity, are using erythritol more, trying to eliminate sugar, to improve those conditions. And so this could just be uh, a noise in the data, but not really telling us anything meaningful. Now, the authors did try to correct for such things as type 2 diabetes, hypertension, etc. But it's well known in epidemiological literature that perfect adjustment for such things is absolutely impossible. Now, as I said early, erythritol is, is rapidly absorbed into the bloodstream and can stay there for up to two to three days at, at very high levels, in some cases a thousand times higher than the physiological level of erythritol. And I think this is the key issue here and what I'm going to talk about later in this video. The authors of this study also did two different mechanistic studies looking at human platelets in vitro, that means in a test tube or a petri dish, and when they added erythritol to this mixture, it actually made the platelets more sticky, more apt to, to coagulate, more apt to form a clot. So that looks like a viable mechanism that for people eating a lot of erythritol, it could increase the risk of heart attack, stroke, and death. The researchers also looked at the clotting time in mice carotid arteries, the time that it took to form a clot uh, after the ingestion or the addition of erythritol to this mixture, and erythritol definitely decreased the, t the amount of time that it took to form a clot. So again, to be clear, this paper only shows a possible association, and then it shows a couple of different mechanistic studies, or parts of the study, that show a possible mechanism, like, okay, so it looks like it's causing this, how might it cause that? And then in both of those mechanistic arms of this study, it looks like that it's by, it, it acts by increasing the clottiness or stickiness or ability to form a clot of platelets in the blood. And if you form an inappropriate clot in certain areas of your body, that equals a stroke or a heart attack or death. Now, let's talk about how this applies to your life. Is this a big deal? Should you get all the erythritol out of your house or should you continue to eat erythritol and drink it and not worry about it? So from this study and from other studies that I've read about erythritol, what I think is going on here is that in some people who still believe that they need and deserve 
multiple sweet tasting things in their mouth each and every day. So uh, you stop the sugar and that's good. You need to stop the sugar and keep it stopped for the rest of your life. But if you replace it with excessive amounts of erythritol, it's probably going to increase your risk of a heart attack or a stroke. And so this really applies for people in the low-carb keto space who still believe they need uh, a sweet treat in between meals after every meal, a, a sweet drink to dr sip on all day. That's who this message is directed towards. Keep in mind that this study used supra-physiological levels of erythritol. These weren't just the normal amounts that you would have in your body. This is not the normal amounts that you would get from eating a mushroom or eating a watermelon. This was a super amount of erythritol. And we see that when you ingest this much erythritol, your blood level can go up to a thousand times higher than it would be otherwise. That's probably going to make your platelets a little stickier. I don't think you should worry about erythritol in your toothpaste or your mouthwash. That's inconsequential. I do think that many of my friends in the low-carb and keto space should worry about, oh, okay, so I'm having keto pancakes and keto syrup for breakfast along with my eggs and bacon. That's a huge, huge load of erythritol. And then I'm having erythritol in my coffee all day long. I'm having erythritol in my tea. I'm having erythritol in my protein, energy drinks, whatever. And then for lunch, I always have to have some keto fill-in-the-blank dessert, another big hit of erythritol. And then for dinner, of course, I've got to have a little keto treat after that. And then I'm going to have some keto munchies as snacks in between. This could translate into a huge erythritol load in your daily diet, keeping your serum level of erythritol a thousand times higher than it would be otherwise, causing your platelets to be stickier. And so I think the solution for this is for all of us to realize that the only reason you think you need something sweet with every meal and sweet in between and something sweet to drink is because we have been habituated to that. We have been brainwashed into thinking that we constantly need a sweet taste in our mouth when, in fact, we do not. And we see this very clearly in our carnivore friends and colleagues who have gotten virtually all sweeteners out of their diet, out of their mouth. And so they're going to be ingesting very little, if any, erythritol. So for those of you who occasionally have an erythritol-sweetened beverage or an occasional erythritol-sweetened keto treat, this, is, this study probably should not concern or worry you in any way. So I've recommended products with erythritol in it. It was why it was important to me to get this information to you guys as soon as possible when I heard about this study. And I, I pretty much had the same view Ken did right from the beginning, but I wanted to be sure. I wanted someone who's actually a medical doctor to look at this and come away with the conclusion. So we agree. What I will tell you is, and I hope I was always clear about this, I've never been big on the keto treats. It amazes me that people go out and instantly want to make keto cheese balls and keto pie and keto bread and keto pudding and keto all this crap. And I've always said that the, the problem with this, but long before this erythritol study came out, is it won't work. That what ha People end up diluting themselves. They end up eating massive amount of calories from this. And Ken will tell you can't, calories don't matter. It's one of the places we disagree. No, they do when you do this type of thing. So this is probably a bad idea, even if everything we just learned about erythritol wasn't true. 
All right. So let me tell you, how do I use erythritol? I think would be a good, and I'm big on the Lakanto product that is a combination of erythritol and monk fruit. And I have found that almost inevitably in all of the non-caloric sweeteners, two together, you get some sort of a weird taste or something. They cancel each other out. And that's why I like that combination. So how, when is the last time I used erythritol? even including prior to this story coming out. Probably the last time that I did chicken on the grill and I wanted to get some of that kind of melty caramelization in the seasoning that I did it on, and I put a tablespoon of the Lakanto Golden into the seasoning that I made for the chicken, and then I used about half of the seasoning on the chicken. So I don't care. Occasionally, this is something that when I started, I did this more than I do now. The, the Having a treat on a weekend, for instance. Get up on Saturday and instead of just having a cup of coffee, you know, make a big coffee with some real cream and you put it in the Nutri-Ninja to blend it up and you throw in a tablespoon of unsweetened cocoa powder and maybe a teaspoon of the Lakanto and then you have that like once a week. The way when I was a kid, once a week I got a soda. And I'm not kidding, right? I don't make shit up about my childhood or anything to make it worse than it was. And it wasn't even a bad thing. I didn't know that people routinely drank soda. On Sundays, my my uncle or my granddad or my great uncle would take me up to the gun club, which was basically a bar where they, 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 they also shot, right? And every Sunday we'd go to the gun club and I'd sit at the bar with the old man and they'd give me a soda called a green spot. And I believe it was about a seven or a nine ounce bottle. I got one of those a week when I was a teenager. And that was pretty normal. It wasn't like I was unique to me or anything. You just didn't drink soda every day. And so I kind of like, these things are now that thing for me. And, you know, I will absolutely once in a while make some chaffles and put some Lakanto syrup on it. That's fine. But I'm not going to do it every day. And I think that Ken's right, and it's just interesting... I listen to these segments as I put the show together so that I can intelligently comment on them. And and when I'm doing that, I often multitask and do something. I just happened to be scrolling through Twitter on my other computer while this, this was playing. And this is what I found. And I kind of wish it was a video show today, so I showed it to you. Uh, and I shared it. And I said, but a camel was marketing cigarettes to kids, right? And it may not seem related, but it is. It's Kraft Macaroni and Cheese... Blue box, smiley, you know, cheese-coated noodle thing, gummies. Yes, it is basically a gummy bear in the shape of a macaroni noodle that tastes like Kraft macaroni and cheese. You think that they might be up to something here, do you? So when Ken tells you the only reason you believe you got to shove something sweet in your face hole multiple times a day or after every meal, or God bless it, you at least got to have dessert with dinner, is because you have been convinced that this is true. I'll tell you that this programming is a marketing result, and it's why you think bacon is for breakfast instead of for other times a day. Someday I'll tell you that story. Today we'll just let it ride, and I'll just tell you that there was a marketing campaign to get people to buy more bacon, and they decided if we get people eating bacon for breakfast... They'll buy more bacon. There's nothing wrong with bacon. Not at all. It's just, that's the power of marketing. Never lose sight of the power of big food to market bullshit into your brain. 
and never think for one minute that they won't do it just because it's bad for you. Because they like you sick because they also own the pharmaceutical companies. All right, with that, let's talk about eating something good. How about some canned beef? Nicole Sauce, take it away. Howdy, TSP. I've got a question in today from Ethel, and she was asking about what to do with canned beef. You see, Ethel took my canning course that I did in partnership with the Live Free Academy on how to pressure canned beef so you can store it shelf-stable without taking up freezer space because beef fell in price last fall, and that was a great time to buy it, can it, have it, before beef prices went back up. And that's one of the cool things about when you learn a skill like food preservation, canning, drying, uh, freeze-drying, all of it, curing, making your own bacon, all the fun stuff. It sets you up to be able to take advantage of times of surplus when things are maybe a little less expensive or to take advantage of being able to buy whole animals and pressure canned meats are delicious. So you think, oh no, it's cooked to death, right? Well, it's also cooked to tender. Anybody who cooks with an Instapot understands what happens when you put meat under pressure and then that leads to recipes. So Ethel ended up with 12 jars of cubed beef that she pressure canned, and she just wasn't sure what to do besides stew. So let's start with stew. One of the things I did this week, as a matter of fact, was took three jars of cubed beef, and they were quart jars, and dumped it into a giant sock pot, dumped a jar of canned green beans, put an onion in there, and then added a jar of stewed tomatoes and garlic and some spices. I think I added a little bit of cumin and salt and pepper, and that was it. And I boiled it for five minutes to make sure that it was properly handled, because when you pull pressure canned things out of the jars, you want to boil them for five minutes as a hedge against the botulism toxin, because you don't want that in your body. And it shouldn't be there if you can correctly, but, you know, just in case, because... Yuck. Doesn't sound like a fun thing to have. So I boiled it for five minutes and then simmered it until the onions were soft and salted it to taste. And it made a delicious stew in about 20 minutes. So all of the time that I had spent canning those things over last summer yielded a delicious stew. But if that's not what you want to do, then here's some ideas for how to use canned beef. First of all, it makes an amazing addition to a beef goulash. If you're keto, you do not need to serve that over pasta. Frankly, I've just eaten it from a bowl with a spoon before, but you can put that over sauteed greens or a spaghetti squash of some sort or just sauteed squash or any sauteed vegetable mix if you want to sort of have that quote-unquote pasta experience. The same goes for sloppy joes, which is another delicious thing to do with canned beef where you just you make a sloppy sloppy joe sauce. And then, of course, if you're keto, you don't serve that over bread. You serve that over some an alternative. You can use chaffles or the same thing, mixed vegetables, sauteed greens, that sort of thing. Another really tasty way to use canned beef is to boil it, and then take it out of the pot and drain off the extra juices, add it to a stir fry, and spice it with garlic and ginger and soy sauce. Very delicious. 
Or why not take those chunks of beef and go carne asada style by just adding a few spices and some green onions can be delicious. It also goes really well in a curry, like a masala curry or a red Thai curry where you've prepared the beef and then you make the sauce and serve it over some sauteed vegetables or rice if you are a if you are a carb eater. I'm going to make fun of carb eaters today, guys. Or you could do something pretty fancy. Go beef bourguignon with a little bit of oregano, carrots, onion, garlic, cognac, one of my favorite sipping things, dry red wine, a little bit of broth, tomato paste, a little bit of flour if you have it. You don't have to put the flour in, guys, but it does make it thicker. And mushrooms. And it's sort of like the stew I explained, but a much, <laughs> much tastier rendition on me just dumping a bunch of jars and some spices into the pot. Fresh thyme, by the way, in that one really sets it out. I mean, really, anything that you could use ground beef in that you've done, you can go taco meat with this. You can go... You could craft it in the meatloaf. That would be harder. But anything that you can use ground beef in that's sort of a loose ground beef will work just fine. Or you can take the... Because the cubed beef does keep its form. It's just very soft. You could bake and wrap it and put a toothpick through that. You can put it as a filling, like shred it, and use it shredded tacos, shredded beef in tamales. You can make it into sort of a, a Korean beef dish, which is delicious. Anything like that goes great with the canned beef. And here's the thing. If you did canned beef and you have a bunch of it and you're not using it, don't save it. Get that stuff out. Cook some things with it. See what you like so that you're starting a cycle of putting things up and using things up in your life so that it, it empowers you. So you can take advantage of having gotten your beef at a better price and then you build it back into your, into your life. Because, you know, two, three years from now, it's starting to lose color, nutrients, and all of that in the jar. I do hope that this has given you some ideas for what you can do with your canned beef. Guys, if you're hearing this and you're screaming, this is the one thing you should do with it that I really like. Shoot me an email, Nicole at livingfreeintennessee.com. I'd love to hear what you do with your canned meats, whether it's canned beef or canned rabbit or canned chicken or anything else. It's so fun once you get into the cycle of preserving things and then using them up to find new recipes. I think part of why I love food preservation so much is I love cooking and I actually like eating. So <laughs> it all works together. If you've got other questions about food preservation, homesteading, marketing, event management, anything of that nature, shoot them over to Jack, TSPC expert in the subject line. Thank you so much for your questions. And if you are interested in finding out more about how to can beef, you can grab that webinar over at livingfreeintennessee.com. Make it a great week. Very good stuff from Nicole. A couple really quick things that I'll add for you. She talked about using squash in the place of like a noodle. And one of the things I'll be talking about next week is using tromboncino or tromboncino uh, zucchini once it goes into the winter squash stage. 
and something I made this week, which was fantastic. But basically, if you slice that up and fry it like you were frying potatoes in a, in a, in a pan, and specifically if you use the Wagyu beef tallow that I recommend with it, and fry it until it begins to brown on both sides... It is one of the best things you'll ever eat. Now, I think if you made it and you gave it to somebody, they would think it's potato. They wouldn't like be like, this is some kind of potato. Uh, I don't even know the carb count in tromboncino because it doesn't exist as a nutritional statistic. I will tell you that whatever it is, it's less than butternut. And butternut has enough uh, fiber in it that you end up with around 14, 12-ish carbs per a cup, and you don't need a full cup of it. So it is very much in realm with the keto, and it would be 100% paleo. And the tromboncino, if you're not familiar with it, is the squash that has a really long neck, and you can use it as a zucchini when it's young. And you can use it as a winter squash by letting it mature. And so it's dual purpose. And I really like that that long neck, there's no seeds or pith in it. So I honestly, my tromboncinos, I just feed the, the bell after taking the seeds for saving to the birds or to the worms. I don't even bother with the bell because the neck is so easy to use. So I wanted to put that out, and I'll talk more about that next week. Next, the one thing she didn't mention, danced all around it, was chili. Everybody makes chili with ground beef. You don't, chili is so much better with chunky beef than ground beef. The key to making your chili, or as she mentioned, curries, uh, or I would say a red wine sauce, so you're eating it kind of like you would, so it would remind you of eating like braised short ribs, is make the sauce by itself and then incorporate the meat. So like if you're going to do a curry, make your curry sauce and then put the meat in. If you're going to make chili, make your chili sauce. Get yourself some really good dried chili peppers. Some ancho or New Mexico or a combination, maybe cascabel, uh, maybe some with a little bit more heat. Get, your, get yourself a pot. Well, first get yourself a pan. De-seed and stem your dried chilies. Put them in the pan and kind of shake them around and toast them a bit. Then throw them in a pot, add a little bit of water, bring that to a boil, let them sit for a while, throw them in something like a Nutridentia, blend that up, put it back into a pot, thin it out a little bit with some beef stock, probably just the juice out of your, your meat there, add some cumin, whatever you do to make chili, cook that through, then add your meat because meat's already cooked, and that will speed up the whole process. You can do that with a curry. You can do that with a red wine sauce. Next, another thing, and I just mocked this on Twitter just for fun, but I, but people pointed this out, and they're actually right, and I do this too. Cherry bell radishes, in my opinion, are not human food raw. They taste like ass, weirdly spicy ass. I mean, just not good, okay? Um, but when you roast them, they're actually really good, and, and they're low-carb. So roasted radishes would be a good thing to add. And you, if you wanted to do a stew, you know, you could do a little bit, like, let's do a stew and keep it relatively low carb. Well, let's, let's substitute in the trombocino for the carrot. Let's go ahead and use the celery. And let's substitute the radish in for the potato. Turnip would work good in that realm as well. So there's just some additions. With that, I want to kind of transition into my discussion here on opportunity buys 
And what happens when we, if we start looking at it the right way with food storage? So let's just talk about a very simple thing. And I haven't talked about this in a while, and I really should do the whole holistic food storage program again as a standalone show because I haven't done it in a long time. But when it comes to beef or pork or chicken, any meat which you would can, and the only thing I would say about chicken is I'm a big fan of dark meat with chicken. I'm not a huge fan of white meat, especially canned. Uh, I like to cook white meat of chicken very hot, very fast, seared, and done. That's the trick to it. So any dark meat chicken, pork, or beef, you could take this approach with. Inevitably, when you go to the grocery store, you're going to walk along the meat aisle, and over at the end of it, you will see various items that are sitting there that are going to expire in the next day or three. And there'll be, you know, pieces of different steak and whatever. What, what I always do with that is just, and I don't care what the cut is, unless it looks like a really good piece of steak, right? And I'm going to just go home and cook it immediately because it's going to expire. That's why I'm trying to get rid of it. Well, it doesn't mean anything if you freeze it. So as long as it's not turning really nasty gray or something like that, you can buy that stuff. Make sure it's properly packaged. That might mean throwing it in your uh, free, not your freeze dryer, your uh, vacuum sealer or your cryovac machine or whatever, and freeze it until you have enough to make it worth canning, and just throw it all together and can it. Now you've taken the discount buy and you've used your skill of canning, and you're able to preserve that meat to use it the way Nicole's saying. Again, you can do that pork, beef, chicken. I'll tell you, I wouldn't even hesitate to mix all three together, and then you can make hunter's stew out of it. Basically, you know, hunter's stew is like we get some squirrel and some venison and some rabbit, and we put that together, right? So we can make like a domestic version of hunter's stew that way. So that's an example of an opportunity buy. But this really all stems from developing a skill set or a system of organization. So let's talk about a skill set here. In let's say if you get a freeze dryer and freeze drying, then you, when you start going to farmers markets, when you get toward the end of the season, a lot of times your producers will have a large volume of something, and they'll sell it really cheap, especially at toward the end of the day. So you might come along somebody selling green beans and they're selling them at X dollars a pound or whatever, but if that's the that's the farmers market for the end of the week, and they're not going to be coming back until next week or the middle of next week. You might be able to walk up, look what's left in the bin, and say, I'll give you 10 bucks for all of it. And they might say, sold. Now you take it home and you freeze-dry Now you freeze-dry green beans. You didn't have to grow them. That is an opportunity buy. Or, I don't have a freeze-dryer. Great. Then if you learn how to blanch and flash-freeze, you can still make that opportunity buy. You might buy half of it. for Instead of all of it for 10, I'll take half of it for 5. Or even, if it's a good deal, I'll take half of it for for, for 10 or maybe you you will take all of it for 10 and you'll get enough food value out of it you don't mind feeding the rest of your chickens right so how do you flash freeze really simple when you're doing a green bean and many other vegetables they need to be blanched and you can look up a blanched timetable for freezing vegetables just google that and it'll say you know you have to do it five minutes whatever and what you do is you take the vegetable and you put it in boiling water for a certain amount of time take it out of the water Put it in ice water. Stop the cooking process. To me, this is a far superior taste, especially for green beans, broccoli, and things like that, than canning or freeze-drying, by the way. Okay, so it's in the ice water. We have, we've either steamed it, and I have a little electric steamer, two baskets. You just set it there, set a timer, dump them out, 
into the ice water and put the next load in. As they're done, you take a cookie sheet, you spread them out on a single layer, and throw them in a freezer. It'll take about 30 minutes for them to freeze enough that they can now be bagged and they won't stick together in a clump. This way, if I'm making a stir-fry and I just want a handful of green beans, I open up the bag, pull out a handful, and throw it in the stir-fry, zip the bag up, push the air out, and throw it back in the freezer. Yeah? Okay. Now you can flash freeze. And this, to me, certain things like green beans, uh, broccoli, uh, and some other vegetables, those are the two that spring to mind. When you quickly cook them and don't overcook them, They're flash frozen or fresh from the garden. There's not a hell of a lot of difference. Green beans out of a can, I can eat them. They're okay. They're not the same. And a a freeze-dried, rehydrated green bean is pretty good. It's not the same. Freeze-dried, cooked asparagus, not the same. Freeze-dried asparagus, you eat it like a snack, freeze-dried, delicious. But if you grow asparagus, you can do this. But asparagus is one of those things, when it's in season, it's super cheap. Go buy more than you want. Use it that way. Yeah, I would even say, you know, you can make some of the freeze dryer if you have it, but usually we cut the back off of the asparagus, the tougher piece. Freeze dry that and use it as snacks. Take the rest of it and flash freeze it. Either way, we're capitalizing on the opportunity to buy at a lower cost because we have a skill set and a system in place to deal with the surplus. And... You know, there's other ways to deal with that because she knows how to can and because she has a system in place and she knows how to cure meats. Nicole has a system where she tells people that she knows instead of taking your deer to the butcher and paying them, you know, more money than the meat's worth almost to get it butchered. Bring it here. We'll take care of it. I'll take half the meat. You get the other half. You don't have to do anything except drop the deer off. That's a real opportunity buy. You're not buying it with money. You're buying it with labor. And when you're good at processing a deer, I've said this before, I can I can break a deer down in 30 minutes while drinking a beer. Listen to some music and not working hard. It'll usually take me longer because I like to quarter it out, throw the quarters in the refrigerator, let the meat firm up before I start taking it in individual cuts. But I could do it in 30 minutes to an hour. I could do it packaged in an hour. It's not hard once you get a system down. That's another example. Now I'm doing an opportunity buy with labor. But if you do this approach, you'll be surprised at how much food you really can store. And this philosophy, I've evolved it in all the years I've been podcasting and teaching and presenting. But I really give credit to my grandma. Because it goes back to what Nicole said. If you've taken the time and you've canned deer meat or you've canned beef, use it. Don't think like when you buy 25-year Mountain House number 10 cans and you throw it in the back of the closet because it will deteriorate over time. My grandma canned a ton of stuff every year. By the end of the growing season from the garden, the dadgone basement looked like a grocery store. By spring, it was almost gone. We didn't can it to keep it forever. We canned it so that we could use it as we needed it. And I think that's something that we've lost in the prepper space where people are like, well, I'll put the food away. I don't want to use it. Eat what you store and store what you eat. There's a reason we say it that way. 
but never overlook opportunity buys. And the way I've always explained this is one of the most financially successful airlines out there is Southwest Airlines. And one of the keys to their success is they buy contracts in, for fuel across an entire year. So when fuel prices dip, they lock in a fuel contract at that time, knowing that if it goes down, oh well, I'm still the numbers already worked for me, so it doesn't matter. And if the, and they just might buy more when that happens, and that way when the price of fuel goes up and other competitors are trying to catch up, they already have the fuel locked in at a lower price. That's at a corporate level, at a multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar level of doing business. You can do that at a household scale. And when you're thinking about your food uh, storage program, be holistic with it. Grow your own food, produce your own food, barter for food. But don't overlook the opportunity buy. And as you develop skills and systems, use those so that you can better leverage opportunity buys. Many thanks to Nicole Sauce for an excellent setup for that segment. Alright, with that we've wrapped things up. I want to remind you guys you can always support the show and the work that we do. And uh, if you want to do that, one of the simplest, easiest ways to do that, just go on over to tspaz.com whenever you're going to buy something online. And no matter what it is, you'll help support the show and the work that we do. Uh, everything there, I own it, I bought it. I'd buy it again or I wouldn't recommend it to you. Today's item of the day is the same one of yesterday, the adjustable grow light rope hangers. Do me a favor. Go look them up on the website. Just watch a little one-minute video since my grandson filmed it and comment on the video that he did a good job because he's really got a, he really got an ego boost from somebody that did that yesterday. I, I'd appreciate it if you could do that. And if they work for you, consider picking up a set. But remember, no matter what you buy, they will help support the Survival Podcast. If you start your online shopping there, remember the uh, Self-Reliance Expo in Camden coming up. Go check that out. Paul Wheaton's Kickstarter launching next week. Get on the pre-launch list. Back it for a buck when it launches. Get the free stuff. Then decide if you want the other stuff. The other thing, though, I wanted to give you kind of a hint of what What's about to be dropped on you next week? We talk sometimes about making fuel. Making fuel. Some of you know what I mean. Some of you don't. You're going to have to think a little bit about this. I'm talking about making the kind of fuel that's so natural, if you spilled some in your mouth and swallowed it accidentally, it wouldn't hurt you. Well, I happen to own a machine. We call it a still for making that kind of fuel, and it is a piece of artwork. It is a piece of artwork. It is made out of stainless steel. The welding on it is literal artwork. Many of you own stuff from the same company. I won't say who it is yet, but I just closed the deal verbally on the phone anyway, right before I started today's show, to get you a discount on the type of equipment that makes that kind of fuel. Yeah, if you've been here, you've probably seen mine. You might have even seen it making fuel. And so I will be bringing you a discount as a new MSB vendor with that company, unless something goes crazy wrong over the weekend next week. That's a pretty good deal, because we're not talking about cheap stuff here. So I've been working on that for a couple, three years. I've been trying to get this company to do it. Turns out one of the people that worked there for like almost as long as the company's been around bought the company from the previous owner, and he doesn't hate money, so he wants to do a deal. So we're going to get that for you. If I sounded like I was in a good mood... That is why. And I want to just tell you something, a little pitch here for the MSB today. So I'm talking to this guy, and he goes, so you, 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 
you you don't want anything else from us. Like you don't want like a rift per sale or something. You just want a discount for your mem. Like he really's like I don't get it. And he is going to send me some free product, like an upgrade for my my you know fuel maker. Um, but I'm like, look, it works like this. I have a lot of members. I have a job. Find them new great deals and make them exclusively available to them. If I said I want 10%, what do you have left to give them as a discount on a product that you have to ship and it's large and it's manufactured? You have to. And he's like, yeah, I get it. I'm like, well, I don't want to take from my people. My people give to me, then I go advocate for them. So if you've ever thought about joining the MSB, I promise you that's what I do. I get you the best discount I can, and at the same time I make sure that I'm not getting so much from the supporting vendor that they don't make money because then they're not going to stick around. So if you've ever thought I really do like Jack's show, join the MSB, use the discounts and get your money back. This is going to be one of those ones that, you know, if you buy a a, a better quality, higher end, larger capacity fuel making device, a single purchase will more than pay for your membership. And I've always said if you like me you should join the MSB, but in that situation you should buy it if you hate me. Anyway, with that we've wrapped up another week and another episode. I will be back on Monday with a listener Q&A show. We got a lot of stuff lined up for that one already. If you want to submit content, you know the formula, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. And I will probably have a new expert council member to announce next week as well. Uh, joining CJ is the latest member of the council. I'm still open to hearing other pitches for that. Be prepared. If you send me an email and say, this is what I want to do, I'm going to say, send me an audition tape. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way